Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with latest employment law news. I'm Glenn Hayes, National Head of Employment at Irwin Mitchell. Hi, and I'm Jo Mosley. I'm a professional support lawyer in the team. I write our blogs and newsletters and keep the team and our clients up to date with what's happening in the world of employment law and HR. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? It's been a while since we caught up properly. I know, yeah. I think um, you heard a sneaky rumour that you've been doing podcasts with somebody else. So uh, <laughs> I've been usurped. Apparently. No. That was just a special occasion. All right. Glenn. Well, I'll let you off. Uh, well, yeah, and no, I've been pretty busy, to be fair. Been down at Henley, uh, seeing how the other half live. And then, yeah, we've got some interesting stuff on, including some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, Joe. So. Yeah, well, I thought today it would be a good idea to talk about sexual harassment because we've seen a lot of high profile cases, haven't we, recently that have hit the headlines. I don't know whether you noticed yesterday, but the Conservative candidate for the mayor of London pulled out of the race after a TV producer said that he'd touched her breast. I did see that. Did you? Yeah, it was 10 years ago during a meeting at Downing Street. And I think she encouraged other women to report if they had also been touched inappropriately with him and although he denied everything it was interesting that um, he pulled out once she indicated that she had had other people that had got in touch to say something similar had happened to her. He said the pressure was too much on his personal life and family so Mm. um, yeah I saw the interview last night on uh, ITV News. Did he also talk about the fact that he was a family man? Because I, I, you see that quite often, don't you, where these high profile individuals are accused of sexual harassment and they talk about the fact that they're, you know, they've got, they've got a wife, a and wife they've got and children, they've got, you know, and all this sort of stuff as if, you know, people that have got those things don't do this yeah. sort of thing. It works the other way around as well, you know, Joe. I think, uh, obviously, I, I've seen cases of women sexually harassing men, so it's a... Uh, it does put it does work both ways it does i think the evidence though very strongly points to the fact that women yeah. are yeah. predominantly the victims rather than the perpetrators but yeah well we i can... just i just done a talk actually on um, on banter and how uh, how that quite often translates into this sort of area as well which was quite interesting and i gave some examples as part of that which were were real life examples but we you know they they are sort of pretty hard hitting really so yeah, well, I think banter is a massive problem, isn't it? Because people do, the, the lines are often so blurred that people don't really always understand what's appropriate and what isn't. But 45% increase apparently in banter related tribunal claims. Oh, really? Mm. Interesting mm. stat, isn't it? It is, it is. So, with all of that in mind, what I thought it would be useful for us to explore today is. Why we're seeing so many cases, and you mentioned 45% increase in banter, and I want to explore with you whether some people are too important to a business to get rid of, because that seems to be one of the themes that's coming out of some of these high-profile cases. I then thought we could have a look at the legislation that's going through Parliament at the moment, which is designed to tighten up employers' legal responsibilities towards their staff. And then, because I know you love a quiz so much, I'm going to throw in some quiz quiz questions at the end. Well, I mean, on that point about people being too important for a business to get rid of, then, you know, something really jumps out at me. And it's a case I did years ago, which involved 
uh, it was a tribunal claim as well, um, involved a, a woman who was allegedly sexually harassed, fairly explicit and horrific set of allegations. Yeah. And we, on behalf of our client, we did a deal that we settled that tribunal claim and the woman left the business rather than the man. Mm. And um, and the reason for that was that that individual was so important to the business. And yes, he did get some form of sanction, but it wasn't it wasn't probably the sanction that he deserved. And the woman left, but albeit with a sort of quite a good settlement package. So, mm. and 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 the reason was the the employer needed to retain him rather than her. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that because I think that's a that's worth exploring in a bit more detail. But I thought we could start by looking at the scale of the problem. Now, you've already mentioned a stat about 45% of tribunal claims relate to banto. Did I get that right? No, it was an increase ah. uh, of 45% that that involved the issue of banter in it. So I don't know what the previous amount was, but it, it, sure. you know, it was still a, still a big number. Um, I mean, what we do know is that it's widespread and underreported, don't we? Yeah. I think there was some, there's been loads of recent reports, actually. But one that stuck out um, to me was that 40% of women say that they've been sexually harassed at work and that, interestingly, disabled women appear to be most at risk from that. And as you said, it happens to men too, but the numbers are much, much lower. Yeah. So... What's your experience then, Glenn? Would you say that you're dealing with more or less claims than you were, say, 10 or even 15 years ago? I think in terms of claims, I haven't seen a huge amount of difference because I think that, but in terms of issues I have, so the reason I make that distinction, Joy, is I, I think that a lot of these things get dealt with before they end up in a tribunal. Oh, I'm quite so sure they're not. They so they're not a <laughs> they're not a claim as such, mm -hmm. and and I think the reason for that is that, that they will be so mortifyingly embarrassing for all concerned, including the organisation, that we that they tend to to get sorted before they get anywhere near a tribunal. We see some horrific examples on the on the one I did recently. You know, one I was advising a woman who uh, effectively her boss had said to her, "Look, I think we should celebrate a deal by being able to ejaculate all over your breasts." And I mean, it's just mm. appalling conduct and criminal in some cases, clearly. Um, but you, you know, it's just you know not on. And obviously, we did a we 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 got a deal with that employer on her behalf. And again, she. She had to leave her employment as part of that settlement, but it, it wasn't really tenable for her to be there anymore. So, I, I find it absolutely staggering that in this day and age, some men, and I appreciate it's not always men, but... We're not going to start case, men bashing though, are we? No, no, no. But in this case, it was. Think that a comment like that can oh, be yeah. in any way acceptable. I think one of the things that I was quite interested in is that there was a lot of speculation, wasn't there, after the Harvey Weinstein allegations, that there was going to be a real sea change in attitudes about um, sexual abuse allegations, sexual harassment. And the, the Me Too stuff, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that started in 2017. And it sounds to me as though you haven't necessarily seen an upsurge in complaints as a result of that drive, really, for change. There was a bit of a spike at the start, definitely, because people felt a bit more 
able to come forward. And I think that's half the battle in these types of situations normally. Um, but yeah, I mean, we saw a bit of a spike, but it seems to have sort of levelled off a bit, really. Mm. Um, I mean, sort of on regulatory change, there's been quite a big spotlight on non-disclosure agreements, so the so-called gagging clauses that were designed yeah. to prevent women from speaking out. And that that was debated in Parliament, and it did lead to some important changes. So, you yeah. know, the body that regulates listers, for example, changed the guidance to make it clear that we couldn't sign off on agreements that deterred or prevented somebody who had been sex- sexually harassed from making a protected disclosure, what you and I would call whistleblowing, yeah. or reporting the incident to the police. So, yes, you can still have confidentiality terms and the like, but you can't prevent people from blowing the whistle. And that's why you get people like... You know, I don't know whether this woman signed anything, but for example, even if she had, she wouldn't be prevented from speaking out and and, and blowing the whistle and and to you know to her uh, employer or to some other third party. So, you know, they can't. And equally, those confidentiality provisions couldn't prevent people from speaking about that to sort of close family members or counsellors and stuff. So there has been a bit of a tightening up. So yeah, I think from memory, Parliament heard evidence from one of the women that had signed a gagging clause if you like with Harvey Weinstein and she wasn't even allowed to have a copy of the agreement yeah money talks yeah 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 and I think they were just horrified I think also they they sort of slightly exaggerated um, because of those very extreme examples how common gagging type clauses were in existence anyway but that's a slightly different matter let's go back to the worrying number of cases that we're still seeing Do you have any feel as to whether or not they are concentrated in particular sectors? I'm not really sure they are. I mean, when I did the banter uh, talk, we we talked about the banter cases coming out of a specific rise in a couple of sectors like where banter will be more prevalent. So the sports sector will be a good example. You know, we've all been in Mm. dressing rooms and uh, and like that. And, you know, you can see how that happens. But in terms of pure sexual harassment in the workplace, Look, I think it can occur anywhere, quite frankly. You know, there's loads of incidents in professional organisations, you know, high profile cases in service and consumer sectors. So, you know, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, they interviewed in two organisations this year and they were, you know, they're not what I would call, you know, organisations that I'd necessarily, if you'd asked me to, you know, pick a couple, they wouldn't be necessarily the two I would pick, but they were IKEA and MS. So mm-hmm. they said that they had a serious problem with sexual harassment and they'd entered into legally binding agreements with them to detail the steps that they agreed to take to prevent sexual harassment. So, you know, that was a positive step that these employers wanted to proactively try and stamp out that in their organization. But I, if you'd have asked me which ones are particularly prevalent, I wouldn't have necessarily picked those two. So mm. I mean one sector that does seem to have got its act together are large building sites and they've done a lot of work haven't they to stamp out the image of men leering at women and making sexualized comments about them and they seem to you know they seem to treat it as serious misconduct now at least that's my impression would you agree yeah i think that's right i mean you don't walk into a garage anymore for example and see the page three calendar on the wall either do you so talking about building Mm. sites that you don't really see people you know getting wolf whistled at these days and stuff like that quite rightfully so i mean I think whenever I go past a building, it's a guy with a cigarette in his hand standing next to a digger but not working it. So, um, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm cynical as the as outside of my property as we speak and there's no there's no sign of them today. So, um, I don't know. It's um, I, I, I think we've moved on a bit since then, definitely. Mm-hmm. So, 
Why do you think then that employers aren't doing enough to stamp it out or aren't getting their training right if that's what's going wrong? Well, I think it's still a, a sort of taboo type subject, really. I mean, I, I think we've now got, you know, there is a big importance played on role modelling. So, you know, do as I do as I do, not just as I say type stuff. Mm. But I, I do think people are taking action in the main against people that breach rules in relation to this stuff. So I definitely see, I know I've mentioned a couple of examples where people haven't, but I think we definitely see a more serious attitude to that, not least because the damages in these types of claims have gone up fairly significantly. And I think yeah. what you te- what what you then tend to see now is you tend to see a lot of people speaking out under what what you would call a speak out policy or a sort of whistleblown policy, and really encouraging people to say something if they're witnessing inappropriate behaviour. So rather than just leaving it to somebody else or the victim, you know, they are actually encouraging third parties to come forward. Mm. The impression that some of our listeners may have from the recent high-profile cases we've mentioned are that, as you say, some people are seen to be too important to get rid of. So perhaps because they're bringing in too much money, they're too influential, they might be related to senior management or indeed to a client. And the impression that we get is that employers are making a deliberate choice to overlook behaviour in those sorts of people that they wouldn't tolerate in others. With the result being, and you've talked about this, you've already mentioned a couple of cases, that it's easier to get rid of the victim, either with or without a payout, or move them somewhere else in the organisation and leave the perpetrator where they are. And of course, the fallout from that type of approach is huge. It's going to lead, isn't it, to a culture where victims assume they're not going to be believed, and that's going to undermine confidence in the organisation. I think that's right, but I think um, my my view is that victims don't necessarily move easily, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, um you know, they quite rightly push back and say, why am I being moved rather than him or her or whatever? Um, and then uh, the other point I'd make on that really is that I think it does, you, you know, it pushes the money up on the basis of why should I be the one to leave rather than him? Mm. And um, so, you know, assuming that you've got good representation and stuff, then I think you can drive a pretty hard bargain in some of these organisations. So, so, for example, the one I dealt with for that woman, you know, I took a screenshot of their uh, interesting web page that was bleated on about how, you know, there were this and that in relation to diversity and inclusion. And I said to them, look, this is going to pan out really well in an employment tribunal. And yeah. the, num- the numbers suddenly started going upwards. So it's, um, yeah, you know, and, and you know, the, the big thing now, Joe, of course, is that um, for a lot of uh, companies, particularly those who are involved in dealing with the public sector, for example, they have to declare stats about how many claims they've had and you know allegations and stuff and they they won't win work if they um mm. It, mm. if they've got these black marks on the record you know that's that's a really big thing so you know i think quite where we get to now is i think some employers have even gone to sort of one to one training as a sort of last resort to try and get members of staff to mend their ways mm. Yeah, and I know we've done that for a number of clients. And I, I wondered, do you know what the success rate of that that type of approach is? Well, I think it, it depends on the person's attitude and what they've done, I think. So, you know, I, I mean, if we sat down in a room and said, look, to your employees, you, look, you, you shouldn't touch somebody. I mean, they should already know that that's not acceptable. Mm. You know, I think it's the stuff that we've sort of hinted at with the banter stuff that's, that, that becomes a bit more difficult, really. So I've been asked to go into a a school um, to talk to them about banter and uh, to, 
to train their organisation. It's not one on ones. It's quite. It's still quite a large group. But you know, they've apparently had issues with you know where banter goes too far in the staff room, for example. And yeah. you know, it's it, what they're trying to do is to really clamp down that. But um, I, I think what we've seen in the past is individuals saying, for example, well, look this type of behavior is commonplace and acceptable in our workplace, you know, and it might have been 10 or 15 years ago, but, you know, a bit like the swearing stuff, but it just, yeah. it's not, it's not appropriate now. And, I, you know, and obviously sexual harassment's never been uh, acceptable or appropriate. So I, I think if somebody apologizes, they show a willingness, genuine willingness to change, then it might be worth doing if the more general train hasn't done the trick, but some people do, unfortunately, it's spelled like spelled out in black and white. Yeah. So in terms of one-to-one training, I suppose when it gets to that point, you're in the last chance saloon, aren't you? In the sense that presumably you've already gone through whatever training your employer um, provides. That's not worked. You've still, you're still behaving in a, inappropriately. And this is their way of sort of saying to you, look, this is, these are the standards that we expect. This is what you've done, you know, and, and try, I suppose, to get them to reflect on their behaviour in order to enforce change. Yeah, and look, it sometimes happens in the context of workplace mediation. So my wife's a qualified uh, workplace mediator and stuff, and she tries to get people to agree what the sort of boundaries are and the rules are and how you want to right. interact with people. So some of it's as straightforward as saying, you know, when you're coming in the morning, will you, you know, will you say good morning to each other? But you'd be amazed at how difficult it is for some people to do that, in fairness, because they just hate each other. It's got nothing <laughs> to do with sexual harassment. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they know that, you know, some things are, you know, can you not make inappropriate comments? And obviously harassment is mainly in the eye of the, um, of the person that's being harassed. So, it, you know, it doesn't have to be your intention, of course, it, it, yeah. or your purpose. It, it can be the effect on the individual. So, yeah. I suppose it also depends, doesn't it, on the type of sexual harassment we're talking about. You mentioned about inappropriate touching. I'd have thought that if you need to be told that you shouldn't slap someone's bum or whatever, then one-to-one training isn't going to make any difference, yeah. is it? But no. if you're, but if it's talking about banter and stuff like that, then it could well do because it may simply be that they've never really thought about the potential impact of what they're saying or joking about is is going to have on other people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on now to talk about the new bill that's making its way through Parliament at the moment, and that's designed to toughen up the law in this area. Can you explain what's likely to change, please, Glenn? Yeah, so the um, the Worker Protection Amendment of Equality Act 2010 bill, so it's, um, it'll introduce a new duty on employers to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. So current, currently, employers can only escape liability for harassment if they can demonstrate they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent it. So that's the statutory defence I was talking about before. Yep. What this amendment will do, though, is it'll flip the law around and it'll impose a, a positive duty on employers to prevent it occurring in the first place. So it shifts the focus from sort of redress to prevention. And okay. if, a, if a tribunal concludes that an individual has been harassed, it can uplift compensation by up to 25%. So it could be quite a chunk, this. Mm. Um, and the employment tribunal's got a duty to consider making an uplift once it's found that the employer is responsible for sexual harassment. So it's, employers will be well advised to try and get this right, really. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of that, can you give employers some guidance about the steps that they need to comply with once that comes into force? Well, interestingly, the MP that sponsored the bill, Maria Caulfield, she said that these changes won't require employers to do anything substantially more than what they should already be doing to avoid Mm -hmm. legal responsibility for harassment. 
So it's, it's really a focus on what they should be doing that's key. So it's yeah. clear that many organisations don't have the right policies and procedures in place. Most do, but they don't live by them. So yeah. the issue is often what happens in practice and how does the employer respond. So if you, you could have the best policy in the world, but if you get it wrong, you won't have done everything you can to prevent sexual harassment. And it used to be the case where people thought, well, if I've got a harassment policy and you know I tell everybody about it in the induction, that's enough. Well, it's clear from case law that that's, that's not going to be the case. No, no. And we know that those changes aren't going to come into force until next year, possibly at the earliest. Can employers just sit back and wait or should they be starting to prepare? Now, that's a loaded question, if ever <laughs> you yeah, heard well, one. I'm not sure they should, should be waiting. So I think the problem is too many organisations are still making mistakes and brushing stuff under the carpet. So the key now really is to review how you deal with complaints, look at the type of training you provide and how often that's repeated. So you might also want to do some anonymous surveys to try and understand how much of a problem there is in your organisation or not. And then if there is one, then put together a plan to tackle it. So, you know, we do a lot of this, Joe. Like we, we've got cost-effective diversity and inclusion modules. We do uh, modules called Back to Basics and uh, where people can do online training for their organisation. But we also do bespoke training to senior leaders in HR, the sort of thing that I've been asked to go into that school and do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll look at how to prepare for, for those changes in detail, really. And, um, you, you know, it's really, it's really important that uh, employers are all over this, really. Brilliant plug for us. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Well done, done, Glenn. (laughs) Right. I want to finish then by asking you to talk about the wider costs for businesses if they don't get a grip on this and tackle sexual harassment. Well, look, irrespective of finances, you end up with a fairly toxic work and culture, which is not good, is it? And then we've we've talked about lots of things like the great resignation and stuff and people leaving organisations and, you know, the difficulties in retaining staff. Well, clearly, if this uh, is rife in your organisation and people are sort of dreading coming to work, then it's not a good position to be in, really. So, um, reputational damage wise, it's massive. So, you know, the CBI example, they're actually fighting for its survival on the back of what they've, what the, you know, the, the criticisms that they've had. They actually admitted, didn't they, harbouring toxic sexual predators within yeah. their organisation. I mean, crikey, that is some statement. And and it just, you know, obviously I've talked about the, the effect on things like tenders and stuff, but, you know, the costs of financial settlements and fi- and tribunal claims, they you know, they've, they've gone through the roof on some of these things now. So getting yeah. it wrong is massive, basically. Yeah. yeah. Let's just have a quick look then at um, financial settlements as you've raised those. We know that awards can be significant. And I thought it would be helpful to demonstrate that to our listeners by going through a few decided cases. This is where the quiz comes in. So I'm going to ask you how much compensation the tribunal awarded the claimant in each of the cases. Now, we're going to focus just on the injury to feelings awards. And those are payments that are designed to compensate people for the upset and hurt that they've suffered and are separate to any other types of compensation, such as loss of earnings and that sort of thing. But before we start, just for the benefit of our listeners, I think it would be helpful to explain that those rates increase each year and they're divided into three bands, which are the lower, middle and upper. And they're called Vento bands and they're named after a case that established them. So the current ones at the moment are for lower um, incidents, so things that are quite minor. They range from between just over a thousand pounds and just over eleven thousand pounds. 
There's then a middle range, which is just over £11,000, going up to almost £34,000. And then the upper range, so the range for those that are considered to be most serious, is around £34,000 and goes all the way up to £56,200. And in really, really serious in, um, cases, the tribunal can even exceed that. OK, yep. so I'm going to ask you about what band do you think the following cases fell into rather than the amount so that our listeners get an accurate notion of how much would be awarded in today's money. OK, All right. So you ready for the first one? I think so. OK, so this involved a young woman aspiring to be a lawyer and she was employed by a sole practitioner. So just a single um, solicitor that was probably supported by other admin staff. I don't know. So she was subjected to around 40 or more acts of sexual harassment. 40, 40, 40. And oh. they started in the interview. Um, her boss commented on her figure, squeezed her arm and asked her to marry him. So wow. once she started work, the harassment included asking her out on a date. He talked about installing a bed in the office for them to use. He attempted to hug her. He touched her arms. He squeezed and rubbed her hands and so on. And she rejected all of his advances and was made redundant six weeks after she started employment. Now, she suffered from stress, anxiety, and that exacerbated her existing IBS. What do you think the tribunal awarded her? Well, I think we can safely rule out the lower band. Yes. Um, I think 40 acts of harassment, yeah. albeit a six-week period, I would have said probably it might just make it into the upper band, in fairness. I suppose be at the very top of the middle band, I would have thought. That's exactly what the tribunal said. They put it at the high end of the middle band, which at that stage was only £14,000. So in today's money, that would be a significant amount of money, be about 33. I suspect the reason for that, although I don't know, is that it, it was a six-week period rather than an 18-month period or whatever. So I know there's a lot of acts there, but it's probably, it's a relatively short period of time, isn't it? So Yeah, yes, that's true. Okay, well done. So, one out of one. Yeah, one That's out of one. That's it for today, if you want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Not so quick. So, second question. This involved a waitress on a zero-hours contract who worked behind a bar at a hotel. Now, her manager quizzed her about her sex life. He asked whether she wore stockings in bed. And at that point, she complained, but nothing was done knowledge, about yeah. it. Okay. And as a result of that, his behaviour towards her actually escalated. So he slapped her bum, he kissed her neck, he stood behind her and carried out a sort of grinding motion to simulate sex. He stroked her back, prodded her groin with a pen. And that series of harassment lasted for eight months. Now, she was young and she had a long-standing history of poor mental health, and obviously this didn't help. So where do you think the tribunal put her injury band. to feelings award? So long, it's a lot longer time scale. It's definitely not lower band because it's more than a one-off act. So it, it, I, I think here it probably takes it out of the middle band into the upper, upper band, uh, not least because... You've got to take your victim as you find them, really. So yeah. I suspect it, it falls into that upper band. Well done. 
good at this. Yep. Yeah. She was awarded um, £19,000, which at that stage was in the high band. So we'd be looking at anything upwards from £34,000 to £55,000 in, in today's values. And the Employment Tribunal said in that case that the harassment was the worst of its type that it had seen. So yeah, very significant. No. Right. Last one then. Now, this involved a female executive who was working in a London branch of a Russian bank. OK, she was harassed and bullied by her manager. He suggested that she needed to visit a Nigerian tribesman, and I'm quoting, for sex to calm her down, and also said that she had only be, been hired, and again I'm quoting, because of her tits. So she became unwell, she suffered from a moderate to severe psychiatric illness. Interestingly, her manager was not disciplined and he continued working for the bank for a year and received a substantial payoff when he did eventually leave. What do you think she was awarded in terms of injury to feelings? I'm going to get this one wrong, Anna. Um, I don't know. You haven't got the others wrong. So. I know, but um, th there's, one, there's two comments there, which in theory takes it out of the lower band, I think. Um, and the effect on it is quite bad. I'm going to put it in the middle band. OK. Um, they actually put it in the high band because of the impact on her. But it yeah. also included other incidents of bullying that weren't related to sexual harassment. So I think, you know, I think I'll give you a, a win on that, because I think yeah. if we were just talking about those two isolated incidents, then I think you're right. I think it probably would have been more middle. Yeah. So well done. Thank you. Three out of three. Two, two, two and a half out of three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you're going whatever. soft. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, look, I think all, all, all joking aside, Joe, what these cases show is that, I mean, that air times moved on with the bands because the upper band now is 33,700 to 56,200. Yeah. And that's before you take into account loss of earnings. So, if you if you're having to shell out awards like that and you know you've described the impact say for example in that last example where somebody's going to be off work presumably for a fairly significant amount of time you know you're going to have i don't know what the salary was but let's assume that we're on two thousand pounds net a month for example you're going to have huge loss of earnings on top of that so it, well, I can tell you exactly what her loss of earnings claim was or um, because she left employment and she, the tribunal determined that she'd never work in that environment again because of its impact on her. Mm. And she was awarded £3.2 million. Yeah, which is a fair chunk of cash, isn't it, to be fair? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and obviously when when you when you hear about sort of huge sums in tribunal cases it tends to be because people are high earners yeah she was okay, on seven hundred and fifty thousand a year yeah it's not a bad gig if you can get it is it um, no, I wouldn't and um it. yeah me neither um but you know but but this that, that woman might never work again in her life so um yeah pretty pretty awful treatment to be fair yeah, yeah and absolutely. quite easily avoided god yeah yeah 
I mean, it, it sounds like it was in one of these toxic environments where, you know, these these managers of these big funds just think they can do whatever they like because they're making so much money. And in this case, the individual could do whatever he liked because they took no action against him whatsoever, despite having very clear evidence that he had done these things. I mean, there was no ambiguity about it. It wasn't a he said, she said. There was evidence that he had bullied and harassed her. And he got a payoff as well. He oh. did. Yeah, but they didn't, uh, only when he chose to leave, they didn't force yeah, him yeah, to leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe, you know what these guys need, of course, don't you? What's that then, Glenn? Well, they could start off with some good DNA training. That would be helpful. We can provide that. Absolutely, we can. We've got some really good modules now. So if any of our listeners are interested in that, please get in touch and we can talk you through how we can help. Brilliant. Joe, that was really interesting for me. And I think we probably just stayed the right side of what was a, what was a tricky topic to uh, to discuss. So, well, that's it for today. If you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary, tune in in a fortnight, unless Joe's replaced me with somebody else again. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye.